If you've spent any time using generative AI like ChatGPT or Google's Bard, you've probably seen how it can help us do extraordinary things. But the technology could also lead us astray. When it comes to journalism, such tools can deepen reporting. But just how much should journalists trust chatbots and how often are they using them? I've seen how it can be a really great assistive tool, something like, you know, like an intern um, who can kind of help to draw out information from complex or long documents and help to summarize themes and ideas, which then gives you kind of a jumping off point to go away and do the original kind of reporting that we expect of journalists. I'm Dara Warland, and this is Is That a Fact? brought to you by the education nonprofit, The News Literacy Project. My guest for this episode, who you just heard, is Madhu Murgia, the first artificial intelligence editor at the Financial Times based in London. We talked about how generative AI is already changing journalism. Our interview was recorded in late March. Why did the Financial Times feel it was important to create an AI editor position at the paper? So I've been covering AI since about 2016, and the conversation to have an AI editor actually started before the introduction of ChatGPT, which has captured everyone's imaginations. But the goal really was to have somebody who thinks more strategically and kind of be a bit more thoughtful about how to draw together all these different strands in AI development and how it's being introduced in various industries, and also to have a bit more of a global perspective. And at the same time that we were having the discussion, this generative AI trend kind of burst into the picture. And so I think the timing has been right for that because there's so much news coming at us. And so the the role is really to interpret all of that, to look at how it impacts different industries and also across the world. And do you think other news organizations are going to be following suit and creating positions like yours? Yes, I I already see that happening. I think MIT Tech Review has somebody who who focuses on this. Bloomberg does as well, the New York Times. So it's happening and it will certainly happen more. And I think the reason is that this technology, which has so far been quite pretty much in development, has really kind of moved into the product consumer space. And it's now infused into products touching billions of people like Microsoft Office or Gmail. And so it means that people want to read about it and learn more, not only because it touches their daily lives, but also because it's going to disrupt all their different industries and um, different types of jobs. So I think that's when it really becomes this sort of mainstream conversation. Right. And it's touching journalism and journalist jobs as well. So, you know, how is generative AI affecting the practice of journalism and how might that evolve over time? Yeah, I think this feels like the thing that's top of most media organizations and most journalists I talk to, you know, top of mind for them. And I think part of it is because of the nature of the technology, which is how closely it mimics the things that we do and that we know are really hard to do, which is passing information and writing things. So it it really affects us in this very elemental way. And I think it's definitely going to impact how we do our jobs. Um, I've been playing around and experimenting with it purely from trying to understand how the sort of different versions and different companies' products compare. Um, And I've seen how it can be a really great assistive tool, something like, you know, like an intern um, who can kind of help to draw out 
information from complex or long documents and help to summarize themes and ideas, which then gives you kind of a jumping off point to go away and do the original kind of reporting that we expect of journalists. So CNET was recently called out for not disclosing that it had been publishing AI-generated stories that were edited by humans, but they were using the byline CNET money staff. And several factual errors came to light and even plagiarized work were identified in these stories. The editor-in-chief has temporarily paused their use of AI, but he does plan to pick back up when he feels more confident in the tool and the organization's editorial processes. But what are your thoughts about this? I think the reason that this sort of evoked these strong reactions is because of what people expect from a news organization, a trusted news organization, because there's this trust that we have between the journalist and the reader, which which is, look, I'm going to go away. I'm going to find out what's really true. I'm going to confirm and check the facts and I'm going to report what's happening. That's my promise to you as a journalist. And and that means that we've gone away and done the work. And for example, at the FT, we have a rule that any stories that we break, we have a two source rule, which means you have to have two people independently saying the same fact in order to verify and publish. So I think that sort of trust and that original reporting that we promise we're doing, these kinds of actions contravene that promise. We certainly, and I wouldn't expect any news organizations to use generative technologies like ChatGPT as part of their published work without disclosing it. You know, that just as we would credit any human assists that we had, you know. And also it's part of the public education around AI because we know and we've been reporting this that there are errors that crop up in these technologies, that they aren't 100% accurate, which is also what journalism is supposed to do. You know, we're supposed to confirm and be accurate in what we say. So by disclosing that a generative AI was used, it means people come in with the understanding that this is not factually perfect. Um, And there might be use cases where that isn't completely necessary, where it's something more creative or fun or a depiction of something else. But when it comes to, you know, news, we have to show that we've done the work of verifying the fact and disclosing is a part of that process, I think. You would hope that in the editorial oversight of the use of this generative AI in the reporting or the assembling of the story that you would be catching those factual errors and that plagiarism. You wouldn't want to go to publication with a story that's got factual errors in it any more than you would with a human putting together the story, right? Yeah, I mean, you definitely couldn't publish something that was just generated straight out of one of these systems because even the people producing them say that they make errors. Yeah. So you definitely need oversight in any use case where this is being put out to the public because you want to always be as accurate as possible and not pollute the public conversation with you know misinformation and made up things uh, which the people who make these systems, they call them hallucinations. You would definitely need editorial oversight of anything that you used. But then I also think you know that that's the reason you disclose it so that people understand that hey, read this with your skeptical hat on or remember that this thing makes errors, right? You use the word hallucination. And I've heard this word come up in relation to AI before. And 
it's a strange term to hear in relation to, you know, machine learning. Can you explain what it means and, you know, why the word hallucination? Because it just, it sounds like something we would apply to a human being and not to what's ultimately a machine. With these language generating systems, it is really hard, even if you understand or report on how they work, not to humanize them because of the way they communicate in natural language. There's a lot of interesting kind of commentary from linguists like Emily Bender, who say we should avoid using words that mimic human thought or reasoning or kind of make us uh, remind us of how humans think, because it's not the same thing. It's not a thinking reasoning being so I think the word hallucination essentially means made up facts it makes up things so we can call it misinformation we can call it false or made up is the easiest way to say it but really what it means is that because these systems are just working by predicting the most likely next word in a sentence um, sometimes when you ask it a question and it doesn't know the answer it just fills that with anything even if it doesn't know because that's how it works it works by generating the most likely next word in a sentence so if you ask it really specific facts you know they're trained on something that's cut off at a certain point that it doesn't have access to and then it lives in its own box um, and isn't connected to real-time information from the internet so if you ask it a really specific factual question that it doesn't know the answer to um, it will just predict what it thinks should be the next word and the next word. And that's where these so-called hallucinations come from. That sounds like a major limitation. I mean, a human being who did that would be considered sort of a compulsive liar if they did that too many times. Isn't that problematic if it hallucinates? It's problematic because the outcome is that it can make mistakes. But I think if we go in knowing that it can make mistakes, then we build that into how we use the tool, right? So, which is why we can't use it to just write stories that we then publish because we already know that it can do that. But because it's a powerful tool and it's been trained on basically all realms of like digital material on the internet, it's usually pretty accurate. And so that means that it can be used as a good summarizing tool or a shortcut tool or an ideating tool, like to help you brainstorm ideas or what rabbit holes should I be running? running down or what are the sort of big themes and those use cases don't require 100% accuracy but it still can be a really helpful way to use it so I think the most important thing is knowing that which is what I call public education where if we're teaching kids you can't use it to just submit an essay because there can be wrong things in it but maybe you can help it to come up with ideas or scenarios and then go away, check that and whatever, then it can be a more useful way of um, approaching it. So does the Financial Times use any AI in the production, reporting and editing process so far? And if so, like what kind of editorial process do you have in place to avoid publishing any kind of hallucinations? <laughs> So we haven't, to my knowledge, used any AI for anything that's been published by us so far. Um, but like people everywhere, journalists everywhere, we've definitely been trying it out and playing with it and seeing how it works and kind of what it's good for and what it isn't good for. And, you know, really trying to kind of kick the tires with it a bit. I would say it's still really early for us to have any policies specifically around it. But I would expect that from our broad ethical training as journalists, particularly, I can only speak for us, any journalist would know that 
using a tool like this would require an internal discussion with your editor around should we even use it at all and you know what sort of disclosures there should be but we're still very early with that I don't think we're at a point where we have planned to use it in any way and we haven't got any set policies but others do I've seen that BuzzFeed has said that they're going to work with OpenAI and we recently reported that uh, a publisher of at least 100 newspapers national and regional here in the UK so some of the papers they publish are the Daily Mirror and the Daily Express you know they are exploring how to use AI to assist in news writing you know helping reporters to kind of compile knowledge around topics they've got a sort of a group who are working through this stuff so it's definitely on our minds here and and on others as well and the policies i think will follow so gpt4 has now been released within months of its predecessor it just seems like the pace of this generative ai and its development has sped up so much how much does it improve on GBT3 in terms of its ability to stop the spread of mis and disinformation and detect bias? And also, like, just in general, how much does it improve on its predecessor and its ability to do anything? This is an open research question about, you know, the question you ask around, like, is it better at mitigating bias or saying discriminatory things? This is something that's being actively studied. And the reason, as you mentioned, is because it's all happening so fast. It's not like we've had months and years to have researchers plugging away and playing with this stuff. It's already out there. Everyone's using it. We've all got our hands on it at the same time. Researchers and people who think about safety, as well as journalists, you know, who's part of their job is accountability. So we're all figuring this out together. Um, in terms of how it's better, I have anecdotal evidence and I'm not an expert. Just to give an example with GPT-4, you can give it so much more text and you can just see why that would make a big difference. If I can put in 3,000 words of text versus 200, you can imagine why the responses that I would get from two systems that did that, one would be way more nuanced and informative than the other. So you certainly see from my comparative playing that GPT-4 feels like the most advanced technology out there. It has more nuance. If you look at like the legal sector, someone I spoke to there said when they compared the previous generation and this one, it was just able to much better analyze a contract and spot areas of where there might be legal risk within that contract, uh, which wouldn't have been possible before. Or similarly, I spoke to someone at Duolingo, which is the language learning app. And they said um, they now have with GPT-4 a tool, which is like a role play. So you can kind of pretend that um, you're talking to a barista at a Parisian cafe, for example, and have a conversation. And they have all these different scenarios. And he said that would have never been possible with the previous version, because this requires the AI to inhabit a character. It needs to know context and setting. So it, it's more than just the conversation. So what is the potential for AI to, to revolutionize content moderation and detection of misinformation on social media? So, uh, what you mean on like, social media? Yeah, like, so obviously people can create deep fakes and potentially spread them on social media. Like we know that dystopian future, we imagine that. But I'm just wondering also, and there's been talk about this, like could 
tools like GPT-4 powered Twitter's content moderation and and like automatically label media shared there? Could it auto reply on uh, overtly false claims that have the potential to do harm? Like, could we employ this technology in a way that can do the work that we know these social media platforms have really been struggling to keep up with, you know, with humans behind them? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I haven't thought so much about the flip side of it, but but the reason it's so hard to automate content moderation is because of all of the gray areas in how people speak. There's language. Every different language has different logic embedded into it. And you say different languages have different ways of saying things that might be harmful or toxic. You know, you need context of that language, of that culture. And even within a language and a culture, there are so many ways to get around saying the obvious thing. And that's been the real struggle, which is why these companies have had to use tens of thousands of humans to do that gray area moderation. Although Facebook in particular, Meta has said in the past that they're catching a lot more of their misinformation or you know, doing a lot more of their moderation through automated systems when it's kind of obvious stuff. So I do see how a language generating, if you were able to classify it, you could get a system like a GPT type system to say, this is why this is wrong. And it would just be quicker to do rather than getting a human to type out what what was wrong with that particular statement. I guess you could scale it a lot quicker. Um, But I don't necessarily see how it would replicate that same problem we have about understanding nuance embedded into language and culture and new words that evolve very quickly. For example, you know, with Twitch and so on, I've heard that people evade content moderation or on TikTok even by using completely innocuous words to mean something else. And then everybody knows what it means, but like obviously the machines can't pick it up and how quickly can you keep evolving you know so it becomes this sort of race between human and AI Um, so I think again it would be really interesting research question to see how much could something that um, passes language help to better understand the nuance that we've struggled with so far so you know all the talk at first was about Bing's chatbot and then Bard was just released But I I think there's some question already about whether BARD is really ready for the public. There was a PC that said BARD not only willingly created a conspiracy theory, but it fabricated citations from well-known reputable sources. It said the New York Times reported something on a specific date when it did no such thing. What are your thoughts about BARD? I, I know it's built on technology that's different than Bing's chatbot, which is built on ChatGPT. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So Bard is uh, from Google and they've been working on this stuff um, probably longer than anyone else. And this is based on a model they've had for a while called Lambda. I've been trying out Bard since it's been out. And I think what you said about making up citations, I found that also with GPT-3. This is part of the hallucinations problem that we talked about. So if you ask it, has the FT written anything about this topic? I've had responses where it says, yes, here's the link. And it's just a dead link. And it's done that for other publications as well. And I've seen people on Twitter say that they've made it up. Similarly, it's not just URLs to news organizations, it's also citations to academic papers that don't exist. Because again, 
again, if you kind of look at it through the filter of it's just predicting the next word in a sentence. So it's trying to come up with what it thinks is the answer you want. So if you're saying, can you give me a citation? It's like, yeah, sure. Here's one that's plausible based on the question you're asking me, right? So if you know that going in, then it sort of makes sense why you can't trust the factual stuff that comes out of it. So I think it's not just a bard issue. And they obviously have flagged it up, um, just like OpenAI did, that you need to check the stuff that comes out of this. So with that in mind, I don't think it's particularly worse than anything else that I've tried. I think Google has been really careful about the guardrails of what you can and can't ask it, which means that the responses are more limited compared to GPT-4, but it also means that they've tried to be much more careful about it going rogue, for example, and saying really bad things. And that was really fascinating to see all the different ways they tried to break it. That's going to have to happen continuously with these models because you can't just test it before you put it out into the world and then stop. Because really, this is the real test when the models are being interacted with by tens of millions of real humans, not a select group of employees or experts, right? Because this is how the the tires will really be kicked on how can you break this and make it say bad things. So I think they'll have to have an ongoing process of seeing how are people using this? How is it breaking? And how can we prevent it? It's definitely not perfect. BARD is not perfect. Neither is GPT-4. You can still find ways to break them today. We heard the same thing from Will Knight of Wired about the tendency of chat GPT to want to please the user. And I was grinning when you were saying that because it just makes me think of this personal assistant that's like a people pleaser, right? And it'll just do anything to sort of bend over backwards to serve you. Uh, even give you a link to nowhere, you know, which is obviously not helping you. (laughs) In fact, it's doing the opposite. But I think what what it's been built to do is answer your question. Yeah. When you're asking it, oh, has the FT written about it? Can you show me a link? It's trying to answer your question with something. Why can't it just say no? Why is that not an acceptable answer? I think it's part of the architecture. And what I've seen, and uh, not myself, but what I've heard from in my reporting, is that if you simply say, only give me right answers, or don't make things up, or stick to the facts, and don't make things up, then that actually really improves that problem. That's really useful information. Yeah. Tell me what you know about X. Don't make anything up if you don't know the answer. You know, it is like working with, and I'm I'm sorry to keep humanizing it. However, it is like working with an intern who does really want to appear to know things it doesn't. You're trying to work with a tool that's supposed to give you an answer to whatever you want. So if you tell it, give it, be more specific about the parameters and say, don't make anything up, that instruction helps it to narrow down the field of what it's able to. It would be great if the programmers could program it to say no but well I think it's because you know it's not connected to the internet so it doesn't necessarily have all like up-to-date knowledge of what's going on whereas you know Bing is obviously because it's the search engine connected to to GPT um but 
So even BARD is, they say it's grounded on Google search responses, which makes it a little bit more accurate than it would be if it wasn't trained on, on Google search web pages. So I think one way in which it, it could be more accurate, which is why I mentioned that if you input information like a transcript or a document, then it doesn't do that because it has the, the contours and the outlines of what you're asking it. So I think giving it specific information and instructions helps to improve that and it's not always useful to get an answer that's no right because it depends what you're trying to do with it if you're just trying to come up with ideas for the stuff and it doesn't matter if the ideas are a bit wrong or whatever you don't want it to keep coming back and saying but this is the only idea I have because everything else is wrong or I know has incorrect facts in it or whatever. I think the balance to strike is between it being flexible enough to allow you to be a bit more sort of blue sky with it, mm -hmm. but also for it to not respond in a way that makes it seem very persuasive while it's giving you wrong answers. I mean, that's really an incredibly valuable takeaway, what you just shared. Should we expect the dizzying pace of AI advances to continue or do you expect these technologies to plateau in the near future? It's really hard for me to know the answer without being on the inside of one of these companies about like, where does this end? Because this has been a huge debate in the community as well. Like, does it keep getting better to the point where there is some form of intelligence more than just a predictive technology? And a whole bunch of new apps have got these plugins, which means you can book things through chat GPT, like on Expedia, or, you know, you can try and reserve a table at a restaurant. So it's moving very quickly from being something that you communicate with to something that's able to execute actions for you by plugging into, you know, the internet. Um, so you can see how that quickly kind of spreads. <laughs> and in some ways, even if the technology itself doesn't become more powerful, the way that it's being plugged into, into the internet means that it's going to change how we live our lives very quickly. Uh, and that certainly is dizzying. And with that come all the, the risks and the fears around safety and bias that we've been talking about, which people need to keep up with. So, so that's kind of my big takeaway. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance to interact with Bing's chatbot or Google's Bard, try Madhu's suggestion of telling it to stick to the facts and let me know if that improves your results. Drop me a note at info at newslit.org. Is That a Fact is a production of the News Literacy Project, a nonpartisan education nonprofit building a national movement to create a more news literate America. I'm your host, Dara Warland. Our producer is Mike Webb. Our editor is Timothy Kramer, and our theme music is by Aaron Bush. To learn more about the News Literacy Project, go to newslit.org.